Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Broadly, I'm interested in contentious politics and political conflict and violence. I have a very encompassing conception of that, so I do everything from like genocide to protest. We're in a phenomenal moment in many respects with regards to the scale of the um, activities that are being undertaken, protesting, I think, not just uh, the Floyd murder and the few that occurred now, but I think this is a cumulative building up of generations in many respects. I think it's uh, amazingly um, detailed of what's what's going on. Interestingly enough, there's a database that's out from 1968 to 1972 by this person named Lemberg, which discusses um, uprisings, he calls them, or disturbances, which would be something comparable to what we have now, and trying to run some comparisons to what we have now versus what we have then. We have much larger number of people um, out on the street, actually. I think some of the largest protests that we've ever seen in the country, but the 68 to 72 is much more contentious. People are kind of going on about rubber bullets and some other stuff, but like three to 400 people were killed back then. We don't have anything near that. The arrest numbers are much higher. The detainee numbers are much higher back then. And so there's some things that are kind of similar and different. But the diffusion across um, the country, um, small and large cities, it was predominantly, I think, African-American up front. But then it becomes much more of an integrated uh, rainbow coalition now um, with just everyone kind of showing out, which is phenomenal. But I think clearly that presence or that involvement is directly connected also to the kind of coronavirus thing. So we have a bunch of people, um, there's a phrase in sociology referred to as biographical availability, people being available for protest activity. Corona kind of made sure, and the restrictions with regards to movement and so forth, made sure that a bunch of people would be kind of around that wouldn't otherwise be. Um, And as things open up, you can imagine that that'll have impacts on kind of whatever mobilization subsequently happens as people have other things to do and now they're concerned with keeping their jobs and so forth. And so I think the economic dynamics are going to kick back in. They were kind of out there for a second. And I think the, the droning nature of economic deprivation and poverty and so forth just kind of got caught up in this um, dynamic of also protesting about this thing, which is just so egregious, I believe, in many ways. What's kind of interesting is I did a a series of papers on protest and protest policing um, back in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, which did not really catch on. People weren't really interested in the topic. And so it's one of those things where it's kind of unclear. Part of it was kind of gauging um, this trajectory of kind of responses from authorities over time. And we we discovered there were... um, there was a discussion about, there was an escalated force model that we had kind of in the, the 60s up through the 70s, where the police just kind of came out very aggressively. And then there's something called the negotiated management model, which then kind of kicks in, which is much more cooperative. Um, the police will talk about when there'll be an arrest and ask, who would you like to have arrested? And you know, there's permitting and all these other stuff. We seem to have um, a move back to escalated force, but it's not at all clear why we had that movement back or whether or not the data was incorrect. So I think my data is kind of trying to flesh out these dynamics about did training change, did membership switch switch in some way, shape or form. Um, But I think we're also now gonna start to look at the composition of the police departments themselves. We talk about the, the purchasing of military equipment, but we're missing this movement of people from the military into the police and back and forth, um, both in the United States and abroad, we tend to separate 
people having these experiences with militaries and, and kind of coercive and forceful action abroad and forget that these people come back and they become police. And so I think my, my research is moving in that direction. I had another piece called Protest, Protesting While Black, which was kind of teasing out the racial differences and how police would respond. And so our research found, um, we looked at like 15,000 protest events from 60, 1960 to 1990. And we looked at a variety of different things that police could do. And we found that um, for a certain time period, um, during a large wave of black protest, actually, um, the police, it wasn't even close. Um, they were responding in ways that they would never respond to white audiences. But after a certain time period, there's no racial difference whatsoever. What's interesting, um, what we see with the kind of... Um, Recent protest wave, however, is clear differential with regards to how black protests are treated. And then that aggressiveness, it gets carried over as whites are entering these domains. You would expect in many respects that the police would not be shooting white or Latino people in the face with, um, with tear gas or rubber bullets or any of this, but it's kind of like there's a conflation. Um, and so it's kind of like protesting white or black, you're going to be mistreated in the current period. And so um, our, the research was kind of moving in that direction, but but had not gone that far. I think the research also speaks to the issue of um, what reforms might potentially work, because people seem to be in that space, like how can we stop this? And what's kind of, I think, missing from current discussions is um, we're not really dealing with discretionary power. Um, so a police officer and a civilian in the street environment, the police officer is, is able to have tremendous amounts of latitude with regards to how they interpret what's going on, and then they decide what they want to do. And none no, no of the reforms being discussed are really speaking to that particular core element of the interaction. Or neither is civilian oversight being discussed either, which is kind of interesting. It's about weapons, it's about prosecution, it's about trying to get the police to give up information, which they really have no incentive to give up. Um, but civilians are kind of out of the discussion, which I find to be problematic. And as we think about democratic processes, it seems really weird where we're kind of letting politicians, police officers, and, and a police union um, basically determine what the debate is going to be and what legislation is possible. And citizens are kind of sitting on the outside, and the only thing that they're supposedly able to do is protest, which seems to be rather weird. Um, and so I think there's something to be said about expanding our conception of democracy and democratic participation, which um, my research would kind of lead us towards. This is, I think, one of my biggest frustrations with regards to the coverage right now. I mean, so all the action or all the coverage seems to be about some protesters on one side and some police on the other. And everything that's kind of forgotten is, okay, so why are they out there? Um, well, they're out there because of some specific police citizen interaction. I'm like, okay, so why did that happen? And so this, not an infinite regress, but we have this regression back to, well, because we have economic inequality. And as a society, we've decided that we're gonna let some people not do well in the economy and not do anything for them. And because they might be upset or engaging in certain activities that fall from that condition, we're gonna police them a, bit, a little bit more aggressively than everybody else. And so rather than address economic inequality and distributional issues, we're paying attention to this coercion and force and we're missing this underlying structural thing. What things like uprisings remind us is like, you're missing something. Um, something's not in the current discussion. Something is not within the policy debates. This is what you're missing, and we are the people suffering from it. So uprisings in many respects are um, a call to the rest of the political system to function. Um, but rather than view it as kind of outside of the 
conventional repertoire of political activities. Um, we need to see um, democratic participation for what it is. This is another form of democratic participation and the folks just had no other venue for getting it in. But you'll notice how quickly everything happens, right? It's just like, okay, now we're discussing defunding. Now we're discussing abolition. I mean, I, who, who thought that we would be talking about that in, in the United States? And so um, all these things seem to be coming on the heels of these protest activities. And this is kind of where things get complex, right? So the articulation of exactly what the problem is, is not really the best, I would argue, with the organizations that are present. Black Lives Matter is, is interesting. They do important work. I don't know that I, they should be the, the main theorists for bringing about how to resolve the problem. And that's actually a larger discussion. Who should be part of that particular discussion? What work should we draw upon? What examples should we be looking towards? Should we be looking to 68? Should we be looking to 1935? Should we be looking to um, the early 1800s? What, what, what should we be looking towards for a solution? And I don't think, I don't think uh, Black Lives Matter is the group to do that, nor should they. I think um, this is a broader issue. How do we deal with police force and coercion in modern society? I think that's a huge, uh, that's a huge issue. But the issue of inequality gets us to why the police are being used in the way that they are and what should or could be done about it. I think what, what's happened in many respects, and this is, I think political scientists are just as much to blame as anybody else about this. We get, we get focused on elections, um, which are periodic. And then we forget things like petitions and boycotts and protests and lawsuits um, and lobbying. I mean, all these are different forms of participating in the polity. I think they, they fit together seamlessly for those that are effective. For those that are not effective, they might look at one and be like, oh, where'd this come from? Or let's, let's wait for four years from now. There's a constant element to political um, life in many respects that we need to kind of be better at integrating. I mean, so I think the the social movements serve a role for getting things on an agenda, but then policymakers, lawmakers, and lobbyists are going to take over. And then there's going to be lawyers and investigative journalists and other types of monitoring that's going to take place. And citizens need to be more aware of the different ways that they need to participate. And so I think it's only from having all that come together um, that'll be important. What's intriguing is everyone would think that oh, this is really bad right now. And so that's gonna reflect itself in the election. There was an interesting book by this guy, Bing Powell, that elections is instruments of democracy. And he talks about the fact that by the time someone gets to the ballot box, what they remember is very limited. And thus what's useful for educators or journalists or other people is to remind people of what happened from the last time you voted to this time period and and get people to think about what really matters to them because we're not really we're not really good about that the trends that we're paying attention to are kind of limited and i think everyone could be better educated on that particular point what's useful is so we we forget that the media is all about what's current and what's an event and they're not really good with structure um but there's other venues right so now we've seen a lot of stuff on social media although social media isn't necessarily good for communicating detailed, um, long, elaborate concepts. And so um, neither is like something like TikTok, right? So my thing though is, what if they all point in the same direction? So 
the, the TikTok points to the Instagram, the Instagram points to the blogs, the blogs point to the books, people get out of their academic heads and they start doing interviews or they, they talk um, and they, they step to venues like, like Vox Media will give you a little bit more space, right, than the New York Times where they're just extracting a quote. We need to kind of need to switch how we kind of consume information and how we're making things relevant to people. I mean, you have athletes that are stepping forward to do some stuff now. Um, I definitely don't want to rely upon them or or Hollywood to do it, but we need to. We also have um, the new phenomenon I find fascinating is mutual aid organizations. We have people just showing up for other people with no other motive other than to help. And that needs to be incorporated into our repertoire of how we think about um, participation and people interacting with one another. And if we can get to that, if we can get to that sense of empathy meets action meets awareness and make that hip and interesting. So as things open back up and we're not kind of forgetting, and then even if things close back down again, we're, we're, we're running a kind of a cumulative evaluation of how well our lives are going. Um, and we need to kind of keep that around and along as opposed to having the kind of focus on the present, the focus on the moment. And I don't think we've been especially good about this cumulative element of our understanding of how things are going and what is actually um, potentially in our best interest. Social movements are not a cure-all for everything. And in fact, um, there's a whole literature on social movement efficacy. And the one thing that they say social movements are good for is raising awareness. That's it. That's where they stop. And so what we think of as one of the more successful social movements, the American Civil Rights Movement, it's like, okay, there's King and the SELC and SNCC, and they did this phenomenal thing. And then we get the Civil and Voting Rights Act, and then we're done. Clearly, no. And that was one of the most successful movements that we can most think of. And so um, as long as we understand that social movements play a particular role, but then everybody else is supposed to kick in, then I think that would help to bring about the change that we seek. In certain respects, I would like folks to recontextualize the police in a way. So one, I think, it's, I think it's not a healthy conversation for us just to talk about the police without talking about the military. I think those two go together. And we need to think about what role we want coercion and force to play in our lives as Americans, both here and away. And second, I think we need to kind of remember that the police and the military serve capital. And we kind of forget economic interest and we kind of forget exactly how that sets the scene and the objectives for what these actors do here and abroad. Um, and so we're kind of like fixated on the police right now. And it's kind of like, okay, that's good. And then we kind of focus on prisons a little bit. That's good. But I'm like, okay, so let's say we don't, uh, let's say prisons and police go away. Unless we've done something with the inequities within the society, then these problems will not be resolved and we'll just have private police and we'll just have private prisons and then we would have done nothing with the fundamental problem, which I think is inequality. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.